You are listening to Where is the Line? The stories you will hear will be depraved, disturbing, and true. If you are easily unsettled, you may find this program offensive. And if you are under the age of 18, fuck off. What she sees is a body that has been stricken with fever, constipation, severe aches and pains. The skin color has started to turn yellowish. There's bleeding in unexpected places, such as from the nostril, even from the gums. Everybody drinking blood, everybody eating brains. Some monster party. Everybody eating flesh, everybody breaking bones. Some monster party. Thank you for listening to episode 30 of Where is the Line? My name is Kevin, and today I am sat here alone. Uh, I'm doing this episode solo. Ashley is taking the episode off due to illness. Before you get too concerned with her well-being or worried that maybe she's gone to live on a farm with some other former Where is the Line co-host, Ashley and I actually did get together to record this episode, and her current ailment is most likely related to a drink that you may have heard of called Four Loco. Uh, (laughs) We got together yesterday, and uh, we're going to record this episode. We're having a little trouble getting going. We just weren't kind of feeling talkative, and uh, one of us, I don't remember who, decided that it might be not necessarily a good idea, but maybe a funny one to go and grab a couple of Four Locos from the gas station, some tall boys. If you're not familiar with Four Loco, it's... <laughs> I don't know who this fucking drink is marketed to. It's 12% alcohol. It comes in these gigantic cans. I mean, I, I, I feel like that this is marketed towards people who want to be able to blame their mistakes on alcohol without actually enjoying the taste of alcohol. Me, particularly. I drink a lot. I think Ashley does, too. So this is not really the drink for us. But it's uh, it just tastes like it's so sugary. It's It tastes like melted gummy bears or uh, a slushy, like an alcoholic 7-Eleven slushy. Anyway, uh, Ashley and I sat around for a long time (laughs) recording this episode and ended up with something that didn't make a lick of fucking sense. And so now I'm recording this by myself because we had to take a break already because of COVID-19. I'll be goddamned if I let this show get derailed again by fucking Four Loco. Fuck that. Anyway, doing this by myself today, not really sure how that's going to go. It's uh, I've never done a podcast by myself, really. I'm not really sure if I laugh at my own jokes or just leave awkward pauses or what. You know, when when all the COVID-19 things started and uh, the night shows had to stop having live studio audiences, I don't know if you remember how just completely fucking awkward that was. Because nobody changed their their meter, their way of speaking. So you had all these night show hosts who were just standing in front of no one, cracking jokes, and then having this awkward pause where normally the studio audience would have laughed. But without the studio audience there, it's just all kind of weird. Anyway, we'll see how it goes. 
Before we get started, though, we got a few patrons to mention. Our new patrons for this month are Jenny T, Janine Shelton, Bailey Manzioni, who is the daughter of Katie Manzioni, who joined us for our recent Where Is The Line Zoom hangout. Uh, she, she joined from her job. She's a nurse. So um, during that hangout last time, we actually had a nurse come into the meeting with a full protective gear. Uh, and that was just, it, it, that was probably the highlight of the evening uh, was to kind of catch up with somebody who's working kind of in the middle of all this. We also, uh, Ryan Martin from episode 11 joined us. That guy is so fucking cool. He just kind of just exudes coolness. He doesn't even have to do anything. Just sit there. I wish I was like that. I just exude neuroses and guilt or something. Another patron that I almost forgot to mention uh, actually sent a special request along with her patronage. This person let us know that she became a patron uh, largely just to hear me say her name in my, quote, regular sultry voice. So here we go. Our final patron for this month is Diana Morales. Thank you to all of our patrons. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding about that, Diana. Uh, I'm actually, Diana came in at the level in which she's going to get a personalized greeting video from us. And uh, after she said that, I asked her if she wanted me to say her name in various accents, uh, to which she replied no. And to that, I replied, I'm going to do it anyway, because everybody knows how good I am at accents. Uh, but anyway, if you'd like to join us for one of those hangouts, I think we're going to do another one on Saturday the 11th, uh, probably around 8 p.m. Central. So that'll be July 11th at around 8 p.m. Uh, some of our other guests, uh, I, I like to keep up with people that we've talked to for the show if they're friendly and not entirely insane. I've spoken with Molly uh, from the Femdom episode. She said she might show up to, to the next one or one of these whenever she can. Ken the Mortician from Ask a Mortician, that episode. Uh, so, yeah, if, you, if you'd like to meet some of these people and just hang out with me and Ashley and other people who listen to the show, it's pretty informal. You don't have to talk if you don't want to, but you're always welcome to. Uh, you'll be able to find a link to that on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash where is the line. Again, that's going to be free for now. We might move that back to patron-only hangouts after this. I think that's it. So uh, let's see how this goes with my first ever solo podcast. The last time we left you was around the middle of September in Philadelphia, 1793. Philadelphia at that time was going through one of the worst disease outbreaks that has ever visited the United States of America. By about mid-September, 1793, a lot of the people in Philadelphia had fled. There were bodies in the streets. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 50 people are dying every day of this miserable disease that causes people's eyes to turn yellow and they they vomit this thick black fluid. Um, so around mid-September, we were talking about a lot of these people have been moved outside of Philadelphia to Bush Hill. A lot of the people with the money who can afford doctors are still seeing the local doctors like Dr. Benjamin Rush. If you've listened to the previous episodes, you might have thought, you know, I came down really hard on Benjamin Rush early on and... We haven't yet 
quite gotten to why I came down so hard on him, but we're getting there in this episode, so get ready for that. So around mid-September, um, all of this is going on. The church bells have stopped ringing because too many people are dying. You can't just ring them every time somebody dies when you're in the middle of something like this. And when all this is, this is peaking, the people in the towns and communities surrounding Philadelphia are starting to worry that people from Philadelphia who were evacuating from this yellow fever outbreak might bring the disease to, to their communities. And, you know, this is a time when, I know I've said it several times, but we didn't know then that mosquitoes were transmitting the yellow fever. People thought that it was, was being transmitted person to person. So people in these communities outside of Philadelphia start setting up roadblocks and things. They don't want the people from Philadelphia coming to their communities and seeing what happened to Philadelphia happen where they live. So these roadblocks and things start getting set up. People in Philadelphia are at this point are panicking. People are a, a lot of people want to leave now. Early on, uh, you know, the wealthy people, people with the means to get out of town, went ahead and got out of town. But now that, you know, we're seeing bodies be dragged out of the streets, uh, we're literally seeing dogs eating some of these bodies. Some of the people, a lot of the people who didn't get out during that initial evacuation, now they want to leave. And so they start trying to get out of town and they run into these roadblocks from citizens from from these different surrounding areas. And these people are not going to let anybody from Philadelphia get out of Philadelphia. There was one account, uh, actually, of a guy who, uh, he was trying to walk out of town, and he ran into one of these roadblocks, and the people tried to stop him, and he tried to go through anyway, and the people who had set up the roadblock tarred and feathered this man for trying to escape the situation in Philadelphia. Tarring and feathering is one of those things that I felt like I've been wanting to do an episode just on tarring and feathering for a while because if you grew up like me watching Warner Brothers cartoons, tarring and feathering just kind of seems like this humiliating thing that you do to uh, people you don't like. Tarring and feathering, though, there were a couple of ways that people could do it. For one, one they would use uh, cool tar. Uh, you would just kind of spread that on the person, throw a bunch of feathers on them, they look like chicken, they run away. But a lot of times when people were tarred and feathered, the tar that they used was hot, extremely hot, boiling hot. And so if you were someone who got tarred and feathered, you know, back in the, the 18th, early 19th century, and they used that method with the heat, it very well could kill you. When that tar dries on you, it has to be forcibly pulled off of your skin. And a lot of times that removes the skin with it. And in times when we didn't, you know, have protections against bacteria and things, a lot of people who found themselves having to go through that humiliation uh, ended up permanently scarred from whatever it took to get this dried tar ripped off of their bodies. And when infections start setting in, a lot of those people die. So if you were in Philadelphia in September 1793 and you tried to escape this, that's the kind of thing you might have run into. So inside Philadelphia, at this point, we have a whole lot of sick people out in this temporarily abandoned mansion called Bush Hill, right outside of town. So the people who were laying sick in the streets have been gathered up and taken there. People who still have money, who are still in town, are calling on people like Dr. Benjamin Rush for their treatments. And 
this division on how people should be treated starts to develop between the doctors out in Bush Hill and Benjamin Rush. The people at Bush Hill, the treatments that they're giving the yellow fever sufferers who come in there are essentially just comforts. They're trying to keep people clean. They're trying to keep the place sanitized, and they're trying to keep people comfortable. So they're doing things like uh, bathing people, pouring cool water over them, changing their bed sheets regularly, just generally trying to make people comfortable. Because the doctors at Bush Hill know that they don't know how to cure this. Benjamin Rush, though. Here's why I have such a problem <laughs> with Benjamin Rush. You know, as I've said before, his name's on the Declaration of Independence. Everybody knows who this fucking guy is. Around this time, Benjamin Rush writes a letter to his wife, Julia. He writes, quote, If I survive the present dangers to which I am exposed, what offering of gratitude will ever equal the infinite weight of my obligations to my gracious deliverer? You must help me to be more humble, more patient, more devout, and more self-denied in everything. That letter to his wife is so interesting to me because this is September and Benjamin Rush is asking for her help in being more humble. <laughs> right after he writes this letter, Benjamin Rush comes up with his own treatment. So the people out in Bush Hill are keeping people just comfortable. They're just trying to to ease this experience as much as possible for the for the people who've contracted yellow fever, essentially that's what they're doing. Benjamin Rush, though, starts thinking about this treatment that they used to give to Revolutionary War soldiers. Uh, it was called a 10 and 10 treatment. And it was, it was a purge, essentially, because this is, again, the time when people believed in the humors. Uh, so they did things like bleeding and uh, making people vomit to get, to get these different fluids out of their system. And so Benjamin Rush is thinking about this Revolutionary War era treatment called 10 and 10, where they administered to people a concoction that was half mercury, half jalap. And that would cause violent episodes of vomiting in people. And so now this treatment was used for revolutionary soldiers. These are people who've been marching, been fighting, you kind of get the idea that most of these people are generally in pretty decent shape. Now, Benjamin Rush wants to use this treatment on people who are on the brink of death with yellow fever already. People who are already vomiting because of this disease. Benjamin Rush's idea is that they are not vomiting enough. They need to vomit more to get all of that yellow fever out. And... In addition to this purge treatment, Benjamin Rush also believes that people need to be bled more than what they had previously been doing. So Benjamin Rush wants to administer this very extreme purgative treatment to people, and also he wants to clear out some more of those humors by bleeding people, which was a common practice at the time, but Rush is intending to bleed people more than doctors really ever have before. So Rush's idea is that he wants to not only give this purgative treatment, he wants to remove 
about four-fifths of the blood in the body of his patients. He wants to drain four-fifths of their entire volume of blood out of their body. Now, here's a, here's a, now, first of all, that in itself is a huge fucking problem. This becomes even more of a problem when you consider that in the early 18th or in the late 18th century, doctors believed that the human body contained about 20 pounds of blood and four-fifths of that would be about 1.9 gallons. So Benjamin Rush is wanting to drain almost two fucking milk jugs of blood out of the bodies of these people who are suffering from the yellow fever. The problem with that, the problem with Rush trying to drain 1.9 gallons out of the human body is that the human body in actuality only contains 1.5 gallons. <laughs> so... Um, what, what he ends up doing is essentially just bleeding people until they pass out. Now, Benjamin Rush, as I have said ad nauseum, is the most famous doctor in America because his name is on the Declaration of Independence. So Benjamin Rush has come up with this treatment, and people trust him. Um, and so people who can afford to do so start crowding Benjamin Rush's house. And at one point... 150 people a day were coming to Benjamin Rush's house. So many people were coming that he couldn't see them all indoors. So what he did was hire a few assistants. And so if you were to show up at Benjamin Rush's house in September of 1793, you might have seen about 100 people outside in his front yard being stuck and bleeding into his yard and out into the street. After a few days, that blood kind of becomes rancid, so Benjamin Rush's house starts to stink to high fucking heaven. But just imagine that scene, you know, dozens of people having their arms cut and just openly bleeding onto the ground. Now, one of the reasons that everybody is so convinced that Benjamin Rush's treatments are effective is that uh, Benjamin Rush has told them that they are. So according to Benjamin Rush, he himself developed the yellow fever and treated himself with this method. Now, what he left out when, when he's telling people that he was able to cure himself is this concoction that he has. And, you know, that 10 and 10 treatment with the, with the mercury and the jalap that they were given to revolutionary warriors. He even upped the dosage of mercury in that. Uh, so... The reason people think that this works is that he, he tells people that he got the yellow fever himself and that he took this treatment to cure himself. What he doesn't tell people is that he did not take the full dose of mercury like he's given to everybody else, and he sure as shit did not drain more blood out of his body than he actually has. And on top of that, Benjamin Rush is telling people that he is curing upwards of 90% of the yellow fever sufferers who come to him. And so at that point, you have to look at what Benjamin Rush himself has written about what he was doing and think about how that treatment actually would affect someone who had the yellow fever. Were Benjamin Rush's treatment to be ad administered to absolutely anyone, regardless of their health, it would kill them. <laughs> so, I, the only explanation for this 
And if there is another one, please feel free to write in and correct me. But the only thing that makes sense about Benjamin Rush's claims of the effectiveness of this treatment is either that he is just straight up fucking lying about it, or he's treating people that don't even fucking have the yellow fever, and I'm pretty goddamn sure it's the second one. So what's happening? What is just... Uh, Benjamin Rush believes that all of these people he's treating have the yellow fever. That cannot be possible because he could not have cured these people with, with this method. So what is happening probably is that people are getting the sniffles, uh, maybe just a common cold or something. Maybe they're just not feeling well, and they're coming to Benjamin Rush. He's drawing blood from them, or at least having someone else do it, to the point where they pass out before they stop, and he's giving them this concoction that's just making them violently puke. That's not a cure for the yellow fever. So, I mean, it, it just... The only thing that makes sense is that Benjamin Rush is draining blood and causing vomiting in people who do not even have this disease. And also, with Benjamin Rush being in his 60s, I don't see him surviving the yellow fever first, and second, his own stupid fucking treatment for the yellow fever. So, I, I just, I don't think that Benjamin Rush had the yellow fever the second time he claimed he had it, and I don't believe that the vast majority of the people that are coming to him for these stupid fucking treatments even have the yellow fever. So, Rush has started... Basically, this murder farm in front of his house in Philadelphia. And what burns me up the most about that is that he won't listen to reason. He's These doctors out in Bush Hill who are treating, you know, basically the poor people, they know that what Rush is doing is fatal, essentially. I mean, you know, you're lucky if you survive it. Probably he's going to kill you. And so they start having these arguments. And this is a time, believe it or not, this is uh, Facebook didn't exist back then. And so people still had that compulsion to uh, take their arguments out in public. Um, so back then, people used the newspapers. So if you, had, if you had a little money, you could put your arguments in newspapers. And it's, it's really actually great and sometimes hilarious to see all of these, you know, the newspaper articles, the newspapers themselves just largely filled with these personal arguments between people. So in the newspapers, uh, Rush and these other doctors are kind of going back and forth. I mean, these other doctors are calling Rush a murderer, <laughs> essentially. And, uh, you know, Rush is just not fucking listening to it. You, you can't tell him anything. You can't you can't reason with him. His name's on the Declaration of Independence. He's a fucking god. He cannot be reasoned with anything he says is correct. So Rush just continues fucking murdering people uh, <laughs> throughout September, October, even into November. And, you know, reading these newspaper articles from back then really makes me lament the passing of journalism in the United States. I mean, what the fuck happened? Why, there was an article the other day that I saw, and this is the way just fucking everything's reported now. It said, here in Alabama, our main hospital is UAB Hospital in Birmingham. It said that UAB Hospital's intensive care unit was operating at 82% capacity. Do you see the problem with that? 
I mean, that 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 was the big headline. It was ABC News or NBC News or what the fuck ever. But that was the big headline. And nowhere in that article did it ever say at what capacity the ICU normally operates. You have to know that information. Just to say that the UAB ICU is currently at 82% capacity, that sounds fucking terrifying. If it's usually operating at... 0% or 10% capacity, but if it's normally operating at around 60% capacity or 70 and it jumps up to 82, that's not quite as worrisome. So you see what I mean? Like the either either the news that we we watch and listen to is they're one of two things. They're either just incompetent and lazy or they're purposefully misleading people. And before anybody says anything, I'm not saying that, you know, COVID's a hoax or anything like that. Uh, you know, I'm wearing my mask out everywhere. But if I turn on the news, I'd like to get some information, not just a fucking headline that's intended to scare people and doesn't actually mean anything. You know what I mean? It's not even just Fox. I know Fox News gets that, well, it's a des fucking deserved reputation, fair and balanced. Jesus Christ. But... It's not just them, you know, it, it, it's on the left, too. I mean, try to watch fucking CNN. It, it, it's, it, it, I assume at some fucking point, people like Anderson Cooper and Don Lemon wanted to be journalists. They wanted to fucking inform the public and not just state their goddamn opinions on everything. You know what? I would like to know what's happening in the world, and I would like it to be told to me like I'm not a fucking idiot. And also, I don't give a fuck what Don Lemon or Anderson Cooper think about it. Just tell me what the fuck's happening. The only thing that CNN, Fox News, all of the major news affiliates are good for is if something fucking blew up. So when you wake up in the morning, you can turn on the TV and they do an excellent job if something has fucking exploded. They do a goddamn terrible job telling you what fucking happened? Who was responsible for it? I don't need the news to tell me what to think. I just need to know what fucking happened. Reuters used to be great at that. What the fuck happened to them? Now they're just like everybody else. And and also Donald Trump. Jesus Christ. He's, you know, he's fucking awful. And I really hate that I end up having to side with him sometimes just because of how fucking horseshit journalism is in America. I mean... We have a fucking pandemic going on across the world. People are dying. And that time that, that, that Donald Trump <laughs> suggested that people drink Lysol or whatever the fuck it was to cure themselves of COVID, Donald Trump is probably one of the, the least intelligent presidents that we've ever had. But you cannot convince me that he genuinely believed that people needed to drink Lysol to cure themselves of COVID-19. Donald Trump's problem is that he can't articulate himself. I don't think, you know, no matter how bad you hate the man, I don't think that when you heard that news story, you actually believed that Donald Trump believed that drinking Lysol was a cure for anything. He's... He's not that stupid. He's just not capable of articulating himself. And I'm really, you know, the news on the right is just fucking awful. It always has been. You know what the problems are with that one. But the news on the left, 
I want to know what the fuck's going on with COVID-19. I don't want to hear for the thousandth goddamn time that Donald Trump said that people need to drink Lysol. His problem is that he's not able to properly articulate himself and to get his true meaning across. He doesn't believe that we all need to drink Lysol. He just says whatever the fuck pops into his dumb shit fucking mind and then it just comes out. And also, you know, everybody complains about all of his tweeting and things. I think that's fucking great. We've been wanting transparency in government for however the fuck long. How more transparent can you get than a president who tweets every dumb shit fucking notion that comes into his head? You know, I mean, if you want to know what's going on inside government, this is the best look we've ever had. Anyway, what the fuck was I talking about? Benjamin Rush. And these other doctors, they have these arguments in the newspapers. Benjamin Rush doesn't pay any fucking attention to this. And so throughout this entire process, I mean, nothing anybody's doing is really helping. But they're trying. The people I admire who were trying were, were doing sensible things, like the doctors out in Bush Hill. The people who I don't admire were essentially killing people, like Benjamin Rush. Rush just, he was never able to be dissuaded from this treatment that he was giving because of his enormous fucking ego. So this is where <laughs> Philadelphia is through September. You know, people are continuing to die. We had mentioned before in the last episode that uh, Benjamin Rush and Mayor Matthew Clarkson had told the black people in town that they couldn't get the disease probably just so they would help move the sick white people out to Bush Hill. Uh, that, of course, was bullshit. Uh, Benjamin Rush claims that he had really good friends in the black community. Among them were Absalom Jones. <laughs> his, quote, friends, his black friends, they knew they could get the yellow fever. I don't... Anyway, everybody in Philadelphia in 1793, if they're in town, they're having a bad fucking time. And there's nothing that anybody is doing that's really doing a whole lot to help alleviate this. The only thing people can do is just wait for the weather to change. And that's what they have to do. You know, 50 or more people continue dying in Philadelphia uh, every day until uh, around October, November, when the weather starts getting cooler and some of those mosquitoes start dying off. And eventually the fever breaks and it goes away, and the the citizens of Philadelphia are left to uh, kind of try to put things back together. Once the fever breaks, the people of Philadelphia learn something. Uh, you know, early on, uh, it, it, as soon as the yellow fever reared its frightening head here in Philadelphia, George Washington, uh, our president at the time, uh, just hopped upon his horse and cut the fuck out and just left everybody there. Once the fever breaks... Washington comes back, and uh, everybody finds out uh, what he's been up to in the interim. Uh, he'd been laying the cornerstone for the new capital. So, Philadelphia, uh, if it weren't bad enough, the, the, yeah, a significant portion of your population has died, and that your city's essentially an abandoned graveyard at this point, you're also learning that your city is no longer the capital of the United States. It would be another hundred years before we realized that mosquitoes were responsible for transmitting this disease from person to person. And, and that, that discovery was one that people found 
unbelievable at first. So around 1800, a man named Dr. Lazar was noticing that yellow fever outbreaks tend to concentrate themselves in areas with a lot of mosquitoes, amongst other things. And he had a theory that maybe these mosquitoes were passing the disease from person to person. He presented this idea, along with a lot of proof of the, the accuracy of that idea, and people still didn't believe him. Uh, it, it even got picked up in newspapers. Uh, some newspapers were laughing about this, this doctor's notion that mosquitoes could transmit disease between people. At this point, it was unheard of. So Dr. Lazar at one point convinces a higher-ranking doctor named John Hopkins of this idea. And so John Hopkins puts together an experiment on unwitting soldiers, as often we have done here in the United States. What he does is he takes one large group of soldiers, he puts them in tents with mosquitoes. The other group of soldiers, he puts them in tents, and he gives all of these soldiers blankets. The ones in the mosquito tents just get a regular blanket. The soldiers who are sleeping in the tents without the mosquitoes are getting blankets that were covered in the black vomit of yellow fever sufferers and then dried. And so the idea is he wants to see if the people sleeping with the vomit-covered blankets develop yellow fever at a higher rate than the people who were sleeping in the tents with the mosquitoes. What we learn, of course, is that the people in the tents with the mosquitoes developed yellow fever at a much higher rate than the people who just slept under the vomit-covered blankets. And a lot of those people in the mosquito tents died. But now we know that yellow fever is transmitted by mosquitoes, thanks to this study done by uh, Lazar and John Hopkins. So that was a hundred years ago. Over a hundred years ago. And you might think that we've come a long way since then in uh, our understanding and treatment of the yellow fever. That's not the case at all. There's currently still no cure for the yellow fever, and if you happen to come down with it, the treatments that you'll receive today aren't too dissimilar from those that you would have gotten at Bush Hill way back in 1793. Our treatments today for yellow fever are essentially just centered around keeping people with the disease more comfortable. The mortality rate hasn't changed. Uh, we're no better at helping people survive the yellow fever than we were back then. We do have a vaccine now, though, which uh, is, is largely what's helped prevent the yellow fever from resurging again in uh, more populated areas of the world. After 1793, Philadelphia did have several more outbreaks of the yellow fever. None of them were ever as bad as what happened in 1793. New Orleans had an outbreak that was close to as bad as Philadelphia's. It was actually uh, terrible in its own right. But now that we have the vaccine, we don't see it as much anymore, but that doesn't mean that it's gone. Just a few years ago, a paper was released where researchers looked at the possibility of transmission from country to country of the yellow fever. The yellow fever has a three to six day incubation period, similar to what we have with COVID-19. So if you were in an area with the yellow fever and you contracted it and got on an airplane and brought it back to the United States, you could potentially infect a large population of mosquitoes who would go and spread that disease to other people. So what if that were to happen now, amid our current pandemic of COVID-19? Do we have enough vaccines to try to curtail an outbreak like that? Do we have enough bug trucks to kill off enough mosquitoes 
before the yellow fever is able to ravage a city. How prepared are we for something like this? If you had asked me that before COVID-19, I would have had absolutely no paranoia about the possibility of a yellow fever outbreak affecting a large American city. I'm not suggesting that the yellow fever might ever overtake the United States or something like that, but what, what if it came into a city like New Orleans, for example, a city that's already had enough problems? How quickly would we be able to respond to that? And would we be able to do it quickly enough to avoid a scenario of potentially thousands of people dying a miserable death from this disease? But as they say, surely something like that couldn't happen. Not unless our luck holds out. Thank you for listening to episode 30 of Where is the Line? If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe. You can also look us up on Facebook and Instagram. If you join our Facebook page, be sure to also join the Facebook group. That's where everybody does their talking. Also, very soon you can check us out on YouTube. <laughs> there's. It occurred to me doing this story that there's so much that I want to get to that I can't because it's really kind of only peripherally related to this story. And this happens a lot when we do stories, is that I'll, I'll come across some little little side story that I want to talk about, but it just doesn't have enough to do with the main story, so I just skip it. I'm going to start putting those things on YouTube, along with uh, other just random rants and bitchings. So if you just can't get enough, where is the line? I can't imagine that's true, but if it is true... Take a look on YouTube and search for Where is the Line, and you'll probably see videos of me bitching about various things. We've got one review that came in through iTunes to read for you. This comes from Lunching in a Box. Lunching in a Box writes, still can't find the line. So while I have been extremely entertained by this podcast, in all honesty, I thought this podcast would be more about lines, like how to draw straight lines or how to correctly identify street lines. Boy, was I wrong. I have not learned anything about lines, and with the pandemic, I feel like some more line education would be helpful. Clearly, I am standing in the wrong line at the grocery store, but would highly recommend and will listen again. Thank you so much for that five-star review, Lunching in a Box. We apologize for our false advertising, Lunging in a Box. In the future, we will try to do much better to bring you more and more accurate information about lines themselves. We've got a couple of voicemails to get to. This first one comes from Danny. I got something disturbing for you. There's Danny. It's about 3 a.m. where I live. And I had a patient for the past three nights. I've had him three nights. And um, he has been on my floor for four or five days. Anyway. Uh, and they just now did a chest x-ray and decided COVID, which all the people being swapped for COVID to go on their special COVID isolation floor. People are supposed to get N95 masks and the hospital scrubs and all that fucking cool stuff. And this guy coughed directly in my mouth before, like three days ago. And I literally put hand sanitizer all over my face. Now 
they're like, oh, yeah, we should do a chest x-ray and, oh, probably viral pneumonia and we're going to swab him. And I'm like, great, me and all my coworkers have been in that room getting breathed on and coughed on by that guy. This is super fantastic. And the doctor was like, well, you just monitor for symptoms. You're strong and healthy. And I'm just like, what the fuck? What the fuck? Just fucking give me the fucking test or something. Like, maybe do a chest x-ray when somebody's admitted to have it. Like, I don't know, compared or, like, just to make sure. I mean, they got a bunch of other fucking shit done. Ah! I'm so mad right now. Anyway, everyone's asleep, obviously. 3 a.m. So, I'm deciding to vent on this voicemail. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you for that voicemail, Danny. Uh, I should explain that that voicemail came in in early April. You know, we had to take that break and we collected a whole lot of voicemails since then. So, hopefully, things are much better now at Nurse Danny's Hospital. Please let things be much better now at Danny at Nurse Danny's Hospital. I love hearing from the nurses, though, uh, especially right now. Uh, we, we have a lot of nurses who listen to the show, and they occasionally write in or call in and let us know what's going on at the hospitals, and it's uh, usually pretty fucking terrifying, the things that they relate to us. Uh, but again, that, that voicemail was from April, so Danny, I hope things are a lot better at your hospital now. But if you don't mind, give us a call back and let us know how things have changed since then. Moving on, this next voicemail comes from Aaron. Hey guys, it's Aaron. I didn't leave my name last time. I'm calling because I <laughs> am been quarantined or in isolation or shelter in place with a fucking four-year-old. <sighs> and I already have a lot of anxiety and depression and feel like I've been a shitty parent. Right now I'm sitting in my car smoking just to get away for a second and breathe. I kind of wish I could take like a master class or order some art project to do online, but I'm also working, which is really great. I am orienting actually in my new job while working from home. So that's kind of a challenge. I'm really glad to have a job. It's just now I have two full-time jobs besides being like a mom, but being like a teacher and not a city parent, which I've been feeling at. So just checking in, wanted to say hi. I know you're busy, Kevin, with work. I know that when you do put a, an episode out, I will be so excited and happy to have to hear that because it'll be like a little silver lining. So uh, keep it up. If you need any help with anything, hit me up. I've been interested in getting into podcasting myself, but I know you're busy, I'm busy, and whatever. Just wanted to say hi to somebody out there. (laughs) Bye. Thank you for that voicemail, Aaron. I'm sorry things are not going the way you'd like for them to right now. You know, those of us who still have jobs, you know, like Aaron, I am thankful that I still have a job. But I think it's time that we can start bitching about our jobs again, even those of us that have them. I mean, you know, obviously I'd rather be employed than not employed, but also it just feels like everybody else on the fucking planet's on vacation except for me and Aaron and Danny. But (laughs) 
If you need to vent a little bit more, Aaron, feel free to just call that number back. <laughs> just keep going if you want to. And also, you were talking about wanting to start a podcast. There's nothing that I like more than than helping, you know, people get started with some kind of creative project. So, you know, I don't have a whole lot of time right now, but if you want to uh, reach out to me on Facebook or something like that, ask me a couple of questions, send us an email. Uh, I'll answer whatever I can and help you in any way that I have time to. Um, but yeah, just let us know. Uh, <laughs> this is probably not the best podcast in the world, so my advice might not be <laughs> the best. But, uh, you know, if, if you think that we can help we'd be glad to so just let us know if you'd like to leave us voicemail of your own you can get in touch with us at 386-227-7848 that spells out dumbass tit on your telephone dial again that phone number is 386-227-7848 i think that's going to do it for this episode we'll be back on july 13th with a story that has absolutely nothing to do with a yellow fever outbreak in Philadelphia in 1793. This next one's going to be pretty fucking gory. A listener actually recommended it and reminded me of the story. So if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, be sure to do so so you don't miss that. I'd like to thank you all so much for listening and for sticking with us through that break that we had to have over COVID-19. If there's anything that we can do for you, just reach out to us because you've all done so much for us. Thank you again, and we'll see you again soon. Kids, when you go to bed, stay away from your closets and don't look on 